respect the law, commit no crime And all the while you seem to find your way Cash your chips, redeem the check Fill your coffers, invest in tech And all the while you seem to find your way Your cell phone hums, the morning comes And battles lost and battles won The dream of battle is yet to come And when it's all just said and done To relax and have some fun My favorite podcast has begun Cool with a K Welcome to another episode of Cool with Kay. I'm your host, Kay Dreyer. And I'm Greg Spencer. Today, we're following the compass to its source. We the North. We're talking about the Arctic Circle and the Northwest Passage. And cold weather survival, perfectly suited for your chill personality. Two of a pair Judge from the same cloth Flame to a moth Sparks when we stare Well we We're arctic bound On a vacation Our destination With ice on the ground Looking for a hidden message Travel through the northwest passage And we See the northern lights surface I found my purpose it was caring for you looking for the hidden message travel through the northwest passage and we see the northern lights every night looking for the hidden message travel through the northwest passage and we see the northern lights Antarctica is a solid landmass and part of the original super landmass Pangea. Pangea. The Arctic is ice. In 2017, the Northwest Passage opened up. It's predicted that by 2030, there will be a serious enough opening where it will become viable as a shipping route. And this is unprecedented. Why couldn't people previously get through the Northwest Passage? Ice, ice, maybe. It's impenetrable sheets of ice that stop ships from passing through. But people still tried, and that's the history of it. Recorded attempts to cross the Northwest Passage started in the late 1500s with Martin Frobisher. What started out as a dream of commercial enterprise ended up being tragedy and woe. Lives were lost, ships wrecked, and ships sunk to the bottom of the sea. And that's what I call the seafarers' four horsemen. Mutiny, strandings, disease, and chaos. Oh, and starvation for sure. Yes. You can't move, you don't have fuel. Mm-hmm. British officer Sir John Franklin tried to sail the Northwest Passage in 1846. He was found frozen near today's Queen's Maud Gulf in shallow water that's halfway between the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. 128 men were lost on this voyage as well. The Canadian government archaeologists only discovered the wrecks, the Erebus, and the Terror in 2016. It wasn't until 1906 that Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen completed the first successful trip through the passage, taking over three years, enduring three winters until the voyage was complete. This guy was a total badass. He was from a maritime family, and his family wanted to become a doctor. And like a lot of us with social pressures that their parents put on them, you follow exactly what they say to the letter of the law. So he did. Until the age of 21, Roald was a doctor. 
And when his mother died, um, when he was the age of 21, he quit university to answer the call of the sea. He finally lived the life that he wanted to. He crossed the Northwest Passage in 1906. He led the first expedition to the South Pole in 1911. And, and don't forget that he led the first mission to reach the North Pole in 1926, which he did. Oftentimes missions would be led to different parts, but people wouldn't actually get there, or there was a debate if they had reached there or not. In terms of getting to the South Pole based on distance traveled, because you didn't know where you were, it's cold, there's no GPS systems, difficult to confirm. It's only now that I'm realizing how much, how difficult it would have been without a GPS. Like, what they would have been following compasses and stars. Yeah, if you didn't have the stars out, or if you didn't know where you were, you could had rough compasses to tell where Magnetic North was, but yeah, you were pretty much on your own until you could see those stars. At age 55, this badass, Roald Umston, disappeared while on a rescue mission for a downed airship. He was just trying to help his fellow sailors. The year was 1928. His list of accomplishments and adventuring spirits still lives to this day. These days, if you said you wanted to live in the northernmost town in the world, you'd probably be planning on moving to alert none of it. It's so cold. <laughs> Established in 1950. Alert none of it. It's the northernmost permanently inhabited place in the world, only 817 kilometers from the North Pole. So it's like basically Santa's backyard. Meet all 62 people that live there. <laughs> Visit the Canadian Forces Station, over 20 movies on VHS. Or tour one of the three atmospheric monitoring stations and or weather centers. So come on down to Alert, where the only thing that isn't cold is, is the, the reception. reception. If you were to think of wind chill factor, you're probably thinking of a weather report. Comparing actual temperature on the thermometer and the perceived or feels like temperature. That feels like temperature is called the wind chill, and it took a while to get to this factor. It was first coined by Paul Simple and Charles Passau. This factor was based on experiments in Antarctica in 1941, where the amount of time it took water in tins to freeze was measured at different temperatures and wind speeds. The phenomenon where air circulation causes cooling acts by not allowing the surface to perform a protective insulation ice barrier and, as well, moves away the layer of warm air surrounding it is the main cause for freezing time in differing wind speeds. Water will not freeze at any temperature above the freezing point of zero degrees Celsius regardless of wind chill, making wind chill factor a mathematical calculation of a relative feels-like temperature. It also lets weather reports sound dramatic, so much so that in 2001, American Maurice Bluestein and Canadian Randall Oskoveski developed the revised windchill formula, which is more reflective of the risk of frostbite. Important information to know if you're in the elements. Nothing bites like frostbite. You're more adapted for cold weather at a higher gradient of temperature differential from your skin to your core. So in other words, if you have cold hands constantly, you're actually better suited to surviving cold weather conditions. Cold hands to warm core means that you're able to maintain a constant core body temperature in cold conditions. Think of it this way, surface area to body volume for the general idea. Usually more skin means that cold air can draw heat away from your body faster. And interestingly enough, the higher ratio of body fat makes someone more susceptible to frostbite because fat is an insulator and traps heat more effectively than muscle. This causes the skin to cool faster as heat doesn't reach the skin's surface as effectively. Frostbite is, con is a constant danger the farther north you get, especially in the Arctic Circle. And if you keep flowing far enough north, you'll eventually go south. It's easy to get turned around. Use your heart as a compass and you'll always be oriented. <laughs> Thank you for that, Pink Floyd. You'll learn a lot of things on your journey and hopefully you'll find yourself as well. I'm trying to be calming and hopeful before a conversation about hypothermia. It's okay to talk about it because you're so chill. Oh. <laughs> your 
As frosty as the inside of a freezer. Yeah, cold as ice. But I always fuel up. Cold weather itself doesn't increase caloric needs. You don't actually burn any extra calories unless your body temperature drops and shivering starts. At the same time, your body does use increased energy to warm and humidify air that you breathe when in cold weather when your respiratory rate increases. Don't try this in your workout routine, but shivering burns about 100 calories in 15 minutes. So don't get too cold uh, where you start to shiver. Got it? Yes, I do. Partially. Um, Because if you're going to move in a below zero temperature, make sure not to sweat as that's the main idea for dehydration. The more sweat you have, you have to drink around four milliliters of water to replace one milliliter of sweat plus a pinch of salt because there's salt and sweat. And that's one of the main reasons why dehydration would occur in an accelerated rate. So think of it this way, where you have a car and you only have two gears. In the second gear, you don't want to rev your rotations per minute, your RPM too high, otherwise your engine will overheat. So you don't want to get too cold or too warm. You want it in that sweet spot. It's the same idea when you're moving around in the Arctic. So it's kind of like uh, a car in second gear. Yes, and no one would ever tell me my life was going to be this way. <laughs> be sure to tell your friends about Frostnip versus Frostbite. Ah, friends. <laughs> Frostbite is literally caused by freezing in the tissues and fluid of the skin. As tissue gets colder, it's like pins and needles, hence the nip. It's this warning sign. As tissue continues to freeze, the tissue damage causes inflammation and swelling like what you'd expect in a thermal burn or heat burn. It's calming to see fluid-filled blisters for 12 to 36 hours after rewarming. Passive rewarming only. Please remember that. And the last stage, if not caught on time, as a spoken word poem. Black is necrosis. The cell's apoptosis. It's a very bad prognosis and carries a risk of thrombosis. So stay cool, not cold. And if you feel frostnip, the tingling, that's your body's way of telling you to go back inside. Warm up. Listen to a podcast. Finding your magnetic north, which, by the way, is a moving point on the map. Currently, magnetic north is as close to geographical north pole as it has ever been before. Prior to 1999, the North Pole and the majority of the Arctic Ocean were considered to be international space. Currently, four of the five states bordering the Arctic Ocean, Canada, Denmark, Norway, and the Russian Federation, are laying claim. Denmark is Greenland. Greenland is Denmark. Just like every small town, Main Street extends and becomes another street with a different name. But this time, it's gave, it gave the world Vikings. Skull! <laughs> it's cheers. <laughs> Hans Island is a small land between Greenland and Canada. It's within the 12-mile territorial limit of either shore, allowing both sides to claim it under international law. In 1984, when Canadian troops visited the island, Hans Island... Those Canucks planted the proud red and white maple leaf adorned flag, and they left another very Canadian item as well, a bottle of Canadian whiskey. When they returned sometime later, their items were gone, and in their place was the flag of Denmark, with its white on red cross of Danish kings and a bottle of Danish schnapps. This back and forth is still going on. Which I actually think is kind of sweet. Very sweet. Also a little bit like, my, my house, your house, my house, your house. In 2005, a process was started to resolve the ownership of Hans Island, but it still has yet to be resolved. And frankly, the Canadian and Danish sailors have no complaints. Hey Kay, can you keep a secret? Sure. It's between you, me, and our listeners. Here's the secret. The early warning system NORAD was established in 1957 and has been in need of constant upgrades since the 1980s. Why? Because cruise missiles. They fly below 3,000 meters. They're hard to detect with the current system and need an upgrade enabled to see oncoming cruise missiles to the North American airspace. So I guess right now you call it nor not so rad. But if you upgrade... You'll be nor glad. That's right. 
<laughs> so with the Northwest Passage predicted to be fully unlocked by 2030, it opens up not just trade routes, but natural resources in the area, gas or gold. But at the beginning, it will be all about trade routes. There are two shipping routes in the north. Can we talk about the bear in the room? The bear of the Russian Federation? Let's start with Russia's current shipping route, the Northeast Passage. The Northeast Passage was officially opened for business in 1935 thanks to the technological marvel of the icebreaker. The entirety of the Northeast Passage is through Russian-controlled waters, and it's currently a major, major shipping route. The entry point of both the Northwest and the Northeast Passage is the Bering Strait. So this sets up the Bering Strait to be a major choke point, much like a busy highway when they merge to a few different lanes. So many lanes become one single lane. Or like the movie 300? Yeah, like the Hot Gates in 300, where the size of the armies didn't matter. It was between a small choke point. So other examples of naval choke points include the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, or Gibraltar. And the most well-known is the Strait of Hormuz, where 20% of the world's crude oil passes from the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. Reported in the Russian newspaper Izvestia, the Russian military will start flyover patrols of the North Pole for the first time since the 1980s to the edge of the controlled airspace. On January 26th, 2019, there was a standoff between two Russian 2160 Blackjack strategic bombers on the edge of North American airspace. They were escorted back by two F-22s and two CF-18 fighter jets. It's predicted that these types of events will increase. Like it or not, the world runs on combustion. For the time being. I'm still waiting for Captain Planet's prediction. Until then, the industry calls it hydrocarbon exploration, which is a fancy way of saying, where's the crude? Where's this oil? We need resources. With everyone vying for control, let's compare the terms of the current Arctic naval capabilities. Let's see who has the greatest number of icebreakers. The global icebreaker fleet. Coming in, China has three, Denmark has four, and the US of A has five. Canada and Sweden are tied in third place with seven each. Finland has 10. And the number one in Russia with 46, with 10 of those being nuclear powered. With this buildup of technology and differing political wills, it's interesting to see where the Arctic sovereignty will be heading. So we want to leave you off, our dear listeners, with a story about Inuit legends and not geopolitical theory. The constellation of Taurus, the bull, is called Nanuk the bear by the indigenous cultures. The story is that Nanuk the bear was being hunted by a fierce band of warriors and their dogs. Nanuk ran fast and far, but the dogs still ran after him. Reaching the edge of the world and not realizing the chaos of escape, both Nanuk and the dogs fell off the edge of the world and became a constellation, with Nanuk still running and the ferocious dogs still close behind. In Inuit mythology, the constellation of Orion's belt is seen as three steps carved into the snow, and it's called the stairway from earth to the sky. Different tribes regard the northern lights in different ways. In Alaska, they're the dancing souls of caribou, salmon, seals, and whales. In Finland and Denmark, they were fire foxes that lit the heavens with sparks that flew from their fur. In Scotland, they were viewed as merry dancers, while in the Scottish Haberdies, they were shining fairies. In Greek, aurora means sunrise, and borealis means wind. Aurora was sister to the sun god Helios and Selene, the moon goddess. In Greek mythos, Helios and Selene ride in their celestial chariot, and the northern lights occur when Aurora would join in. Aurora's chariot is made of vivid dancing colors, and therefore, the spectacle occurred. To the Inuit, both in Canada and Greenland, the Northern Lights are the souls of those who've died, rising to the icy snowfields in the sky. 
The tribe of the Lakota Sioux said that the Northern Lights were spirits of future generations waiting to be born. Stories become myth. And myths become legends. And it's been a legendary time recording this podcast. And remember, no matter what life throws at you, stay cool, my friends. <laughs>